Uh, The scripture I'm about to read is where we left off last week in our sermon series through the gospel according to Matthew. Let's read the text. Let's just dive in and start with these words from Jesus in verse 26, Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, and then I'm going to stop at verse 30. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I believe the big idea of this passage is that we should behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The big idea is that we, in response to what this passage means and what it's saying, is that we should behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the aim of this specific message is to help us overcome what I see as three challenges or problems that will keep us from accomplishing that goal. The goal of beholding the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Three problems that I think we should address and make clear about our situation, this text, and what it means. First problem is the problem of symbols. The second problem is the problem of the story. The third problem is the problem of the scriptures. I'll explain each of these, as you might imagine as we go through one at a time, but let's start first with the problem of the symbols. The problem of the symbols is that when we look at this passage, we consider that Jesus, in a very unique way, is telling us what his upcoming death is going to mean. And I want you to just pause for a moment before the familiarity of these words for many of you who have grown up in church or read your Bibles, repeatedly again and again, and have heard these words, to not tune them out and realize that Jesus in this moment is helping us understand why he came to the earth, why he died, and what the purpose was. And he does not give a long, elaborate, detailed theological sermon. At the center of what he gives us to explain the meaning of his death are symbols that are connected to a story that has theological significance from the scriptures. And we have problems with each of those things. The problems with the symbols, problems with the story, and we have problems with the significance from the scriptures. Barriers, at least, for us to truly behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. 
You can see in the text, if you read them again, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. If you look down at verse 27, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There are two different kinds of problems with the symbols. The first problem is that the literature about this passage of scripture, the focus, the attention has been a zoomed in narrow focus on the one word is. This is my body. This is my blood. And for the last at least 500 years, if you've been in a Christian church, whether Catholic or Protestant, that has been the narrowed focus. And in many ways, that's become a barrier to see the meaning and the significance of this passage. That's one layer of the symbolic problem. The bigger, broader layer that I think affects all of us, regardless of your Protestant or Catholic baggage coming into this story, is that you're an American, or a lot of you are, or you live in America. Or, to put it another way, you live in a 21st century modern world. And that creates a problem with symbols. Let me illustrate it this way. In the fall of 2016, Netflix released a new show that became a big hit. The show is called The Crown. It takes place in the 1950s, a couple decades after King George was made the king. Now, if you know from this story or watching the show, he became the king because his older brother, Edward, abdicated his throne in order to run off and marry an American woman who had been divorced three times. (gasps) This Netflix show imagines what might have happened when King George dies and his young wife, Elizabeth, has to take on the crown as the new queen. But now set within a new world of television, celebrities, and the decline of the British imperial system, Elizabeth is now in a position that she would have never chosen for herself. She's constantly being reminded that she is supposed to represent something much bigger and deeper than herself. She must protect the meaning and the significance of the crown, especially after her uncle, Edward nearly destroyed the significance of the crown by choosing self-fulfillment over duty and choosing romance over the call to be a ruler. Elizabeth is therefore standing between two worlds. It's as if she's got one foot in one world and one foot in another. One foot is in the world of the ancient world of royalty and the other post-war, globalizing world with television and jet planes. This is a delicate balance. It is struck quite poignantly in the 1953 coronation that is captured in this show. This ceremony is filled with ancient smells and bells and rituals. And for the first time in human history, it is now being beamed across the globe into people's living rooms because of television cameras. And so now this clash between the two worlds that she's straddling is all the more clear, 
as the new queen is receiving the anointing oil in the ceremony. The anointing oil, the oil that would mark her off as someone different, as the queen, as they declared words that presided over this ceremony and said, you are now Queen Elizabeth II. Through this royal tradition, Elizabeth is no longer Elizabeth Windsor. She is Queen Elizabeth. Not an ordinary shy girl. She is the representative of God for all of England. And just then, at that moment, a golden canopy is brought forward and shields the audience from this supremely holy act. And the shielding was for the protection of the audience. And right then, for those watching on television, the camera will cut away because this moment is too revered, too divine for the average person to watch. And at this moment of the Netflix show, they cut over to Uncle Edward, the formerly abdicated king, watching the whole thing unfold on a television screen in Paris, surrounded by his wife, who he chose, the American, instead of the crown, and with a room full of American tourists who are watching. All of the Americans are confused at the proceedings as to what's going on, and so Edward starts providing a play-by-play explaining to them the ritualism and the symbolism and what this all means to these American tourists. And so when the television screen cuts away and the golden canopy is put over the new queen, an American in the room shouts out and says, Hey, where'd she go? And Edward says, We're now coming to the anointing portion of the ceremony in his fine, elite British accent. This is the single most holy, most solemn, most sacred moment of the entire service. The American pipes up again and says, well, then why don't we get to see it? Edwards responds and says, we're mortals. And then he lifts his voice full on play-by-play mode and he says, oil and oaths, orbs and scepters, symbol upon symbol. It is an unfathomable web of arcane mysteries and liturgy. Blurring so many lines, no clergyman or historian or lawyer could ever untangle all of it. And then at this moment, the American blurts out what you and I, deep down inside, are probably thinking. Ah, this is all crazy. Edward responds and says, oh, on the contrary, all of this is perfectly sane. Who wants transparency when you could have magic? Who wants prose when you could have poetry? Pull away the veil, what are you left with? An ordinary girl with modest abilities and little imagination, but if you wrap her up like this and anoint her with oil, presto, you have a goddess. That scene from this Netflix show, I think beautifully captures the two worlds that you and I are standing upon. We live in a time where magic and mystery are only found in the movies. And the only goddesses that we have are the supermodel actresses who are starring in those movies. We live in a time when it's assumed that science has explained, and if it hasn't already, it soon will, every single mystery that exists. And therefore, we're left with modest, unimaginative girls who are only just that. And then, you strolled into church today, 
or tuned in on your Zoom, and you read your Bible and you're told, what if life isn't really just that flat? What if ordinary human beings indeed can be transformed by words and symbols and rituals? But who's going to talk like that to your next door neighbor or your coworker? How many of you are struggling with the problem of symbols? Challenged every day by the modern world that we live in to doubt the very thing that our souls are made to long for. Do any of you yearn for poetry instead of prose? For mystery over transparency? Are you having a hard time because we live in the 21st century world? Oil is just oil. A girl is just a girl. She's related to an ape, not a god. And there's nothing outside that can change you or me or her into something else. At least that's what we're told every day in the world that we live in. The waters that we are swimming in. We are the Americans in the room watching a coronation ceremony and saying, this is crazy. And if you think I'm overstating things, then why is it? And when any of you get sick, you rarely ever call the elders and obey James 5 and say, come, anoint my head with oil so I could be healed. But instead, you call the doctor because we have a problem with symbols. Before we read further on in our text, I want us to acknowledge that we live in a world where no Religious, symbolic actions have meaning to us. Bread is bread. Wine or juice is just wine or juice. And Protestant Christians for the last 500 years have been trying to say that they are not literally the body and the blood of Jesus. And even though that's true, we have so emphasized that nothing mysterious is happening to the bread or the cup that we're left without very much happening at all in the entire ceremony. Or to put it simply, the goal of today's message, that we would behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, becomes difficult to do when there's nothing really to behold. There's nothing transcendent. And so if you're tempted to doubt, the symbolic actions have little meaning or value because that's what the world is telling you every day you live in it. The next few moments will honestly be a complete waste. And when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, then it will seem like this is crazy. And I think this is the problem we have with the symbols. And with that in mind, I want to make sure we understand that these symbols have symbolic significance because of the story and the scriptures. But unfortunately for us, we not only have a problem with symbols, we have a problem with the story and the scriptures. To those two points we move now. Our problem with the story, what do I mean by that? We'll look down at the story again, the actual story that's accounted with us. There's details about this story that are puzzling. And you start with the first line, and it says in verse 26, now, as they were eating. As they were eating what? Well, we know there's bread, and we know there's wine. We know that there's a dish that something was being dipped into. And from those details, we can assume a lot of things about the Jewish Passover, about what they may or may not have been eating. But what were they eating? And here's the biggest question of all. 
Were they eating lamb? Could you imagine going to Thanksgiving and not having a turkey? Now, some of you might do that, and I'm just trying to give some sort of relevant comparison. An annual festival, a tradition, something that's like, that's what Thanksgiving's about. You can't have Thanksgiving without a turkey. Think about that ritualism and that symbol for our American society. Magnify that by 100. And now imagine that you're going to hear a story during the week of Passover, and there's not a single mention of a lamb. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke, and not in John. Have you ever thought about that before? This is Passover. Look up in the text with me, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. I feel like Matthew's trying to make a point here. He says in four different ways, in a few verses, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. But there's no lamb. It's the center of the meal. And as they were eating, eh, we'll just move on. That detail's not important. Did they even have a lamb? That's another big problem. We talked about it in the last couple weeks, actually. What's the timing of this event? And could they even have had a lamb if it's the day before? Well, then they couldn't have gone to the temple ceremony and part of those preparations. Maybe they couldn't have even gotten a lamb and that's why the lamb's not there. Maybe Jesus was sacrificed at the precise moment of when the sacrificial lamb was supposed to happen. And that's why there's no lamb on the table. That's one theory. I think it's an excellent theory, but it could be even more than that. Why is it that the lamb, which was central to the whole story of the Exodus, is not highlighted at all when it was the lamb and the blood of the lamb that gave the people of Israel their true freedom from the angel of death that was going to pass over all of Egypt. This is what the Passover was about, the lamb, the lamb that would be slain on behalf of those who were in the home worshiping together their God. When you go back to Exodus chapters 12, 13, and 14, and you reread the story of the Exodus, you realize that it is the lamb and not the bread that is central. The unleavened bread, we talked about its significance last week, and it is significant, but it is not central significance. It's like going to Thanksgiving and talking about, guys, instead of talking about Thanksgiving, let's talk about what we could spend more money on. It's like you're flipping things around. What? This is not about consumerism and greed. This is about being thankful for what we have and relishing in what God has given us and being thankful for that. Jesus is, is so mixing things around that it starts to beg the question, is this really even a Passover? There's no lamb. He's talking about the bread and, and the cup. There's more details like this. Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And in many ways, this is probably a reference to the blessing, the form traditionally used when we read Jewish scriptures or, or, or Jewish writings where he would say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the world who brings forth the bread from the earth. The blessing that is probably being referred to here, both grammatically and traditionally, is not a blessing of the bread, even though it reads that way in English. 
It is probably more literally the blessing that is to God for the bread. This is what they did all through this ceremony when you reread the liturgies, the the rituals of the Jewish Passover. And so when you read this part of the story, a lot of people get stuck on, oh, he blessed the bread because the bread's going to become magical body of Jesus. But instead, it's probably better to read, he blessed the Lord for the bread. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth the bread from the earth. In the Jewish traditions, the food is not blessed. God is praised. And so he puts the focus on this unleavened bread instead of on the lamb. He says, take and eat this because this is my body. Then he takes the cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them and he said, drink of it, all of you. When he gave thanks, he's probably talking about the same sort of blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth the fruit of the vine, which is why we have that little phrase, the fruit of the vine. It's from the traditional saying of the Jewish repeated prayer. When you'd give thanks for the cup. But which cup is this? Is it the first cup, the second cup, the third cup, the fourth cup? Many of you probably don't even realize that, which is part of your problem with this story. You don't even have in your mind how Passover's functioned. There was four cups. There was a cup at the beginning. There was a cup before you eat the lamb. There was a cup after you eat the lamb. And then there was a cup at the very end. And there's all kinds of debates because Luke talks about two cups. Matthew only talks about one cup. Mark talks about one cup. And John doesn't mention any of the cups. And so we have problems with this story. Is it a Passover or is it not a Passover? Is Matthew or Mark clearly situating it within the Passover, but then the details of the meal don't quite match a Passover? And we could go on, but hopefully you're getting the idea. Both the timing, the setting, the details suggest Passover, but not Passover. Yes, but no. Lamb, but no lamb. What's going on? I think the easiest way to sum all this up is that Jesus is having a Passover, but he's not having a Passover. He is instituting a new Passover. He is redefining the old Passover, and instead of giving us a speech, he gives us a symbol, and that symbol is laden with a story. And you've got the entire Bible, the story of the Lamb, you've got the story of Exodus, you've got the story of the New Covenant, and all of the things that are laden in the Old Testament scriptures, that if you know your Old Testament, he just gave you a lot in two little symbols of bread and cup. But if you've got a problem with the symbols and you've got a problem with the story and you don't really know your scriptures, then how are you going to behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world? So, yes, it's a Passover. But no, it's not a Passover. And that, I believe, is intentional. The Lamb is not there. And this makes sense. Why would Jesus and the gospel writers focus on the Lamb when he is the Lamb? Best line ever on this point is from Tim Keller. He says, the lamb is not on the table because the lamb is sitting at the table. The lamb is there, but it's the lamb who will take away the sins of the world for the once and for all sacrifice. Why would you even mention the lamb if Jesus is to be the lamb in the new Passover and you'll never need to sacrifice another lamb again? Christians in later days might get confused and think, oh, should we go to the temple? Should we go to the temple and sacrifice a lamb and redo that whole thing because we're going to do Christian Passover? No! 
Jesus is the lamb. You don't need another lamb. There will never be a need for another drop of a lamb's blood ever again. Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Indeed, it would be foolish. It would be silly, wouldn't it? If he's trying to say, I am the new lamb. And then, by the way, when you celebrate this again, let's focus on the lamb. And you sacrificing an actual lamb. And especially if you don't understand the symbolic actions of this moment and you, you've quickly forgotten the symbolic actions of the moments just prior to this one, which was Jesus inside the temple, turning over tables and saying this whole temple system is corrupt. And in fact, it's going to be destroyed. And the whole world is going to seem as if it has been thrown open and a new world being made. Do you remember that long teaching series we did while we were outside? We were talking about the destruction of the temple in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And on and on, Jesus kept trying to say the theological and significant moment of the temple's destruction will be like a whole world is coming undone and a new world is being established. So why in the world are you talking about a lamb when there is no temple and the whole temple system is corrupt and the temple is Jesus and his body and the church? In light of all of these things, it makes perfect sense why it is a Passover, but it's a whole new kind of Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And he is not on the table for us to eat. He is at the table. And he is every time you and I gather in worship. Lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. The significance of Jesus' presence is not in the elements itself, but in the church, who is his body, who is the temple. Where the lambs were sacrificed, his once and for all sacrifice creates a whole new temple of his body. This is what John says. Right before he says the famous words, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, in John chapter 1, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. He templed. He becomes our temple. And so these are the problems with the story. And part of the problem of why the symbols don't have the rich meaning of the story is because of our lack of knowledge of the scriptures, which brings us to our third and final problem, the scriptures. We have a problem that you and I, more often than not, we read the New Testament and we don't read the Old Testament. If I were to ask you, what did the Passover represent? And does it seem like a good idea for Jesus to calculate and die in Passover week? Some of you might think yes, and some of you might not know, and there's all kinds of misunderstanding. And in in order for you to really fully grasp, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, you need to know the symbols are attached to a story that are explained by the Scriptures. And the Scriptures tell us that the Passover, and this is what makes it so strange, was not about the forgiveness of sins. The Passover was about being the defeat of the the oppressive powers of darkness, freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression. Israel did not get into slavery in Egypt because of some sin. At least the scriptures don't say that. So now Jesus is doing a new Passover, but he's talking about the forgiveness of sins. And oh, the problems and complexities start to layer on top of each other. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from slavery. Israel was rescued out 
of Egypt in order to be constituted as a nation to establish a covenant relationship with God by the blood of the covenant in Exodus chapter 24. So that, if you read Exodus, start underlining every time you see, so that we may worship our God. So that we may worship the one true God, Israel, of Israel, Yahweh. That's the purpose of the Exodus. Set them free from slavery, free from the powers of darkness and oppressive regimes, and allow them to worship the one true God and be restored to a relationship with him as was pictured in the Garden of Eden. And so if we're not well aware that that's the story and you start thinking, well, Passover, yeah, that makes sense. But in many ways, it doesn't. Because the forgiveness of sins, you would think, well, why didn't he do this on the Day of Atonement? That's another high holiday. That's about atoning for one's sins. Why Passover? Why talk about being for the blood of the covenant being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins? Each of these three phrases would have been like those hyperlinks. You're ever on an internet screen page and then there's the normal text and then the text changes colors. It's like from black to blue. And then you click on it on your computer. And it's like that little phrase takes you to an entirely different web page, an entirely different article. It's, it's as if they wanted to say, when I say this phrase, I want you to get this whole understanding of this other thing going on. The Bible is filled with hyperlinks like this. Little phrases that if you're well aware of your Old Testament Bible, you would have been like, oh, he's quoting Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. Oh, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. Oh, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 33. Is that what you thought when you read this? Oh, the scriptures are being quoted. And the whole story then of the people of Israel is now being retold as Jesus says these words. Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, Exodus 24, verse 8, which is poured out for many Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. For the forgiveness of sins, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 33. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is talking about kingdom, not just your individual forgiveness of sins. He's talking about a new covenant. We've got the entire Old Testament being summarized in symbols because of the story that it's attached to with the scriptures that are being quoted. And in sum, I would put it this way. Exodus and Passover are about being released from oppression, being set free from slavery. And in that sense, Jesus is going to bring about the fulfillment of Exodus. But if you read the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you will know that they needed a new kind of exodus because they were under oppression. When Jesus shows up onto the earth, when we celebrate Christmas, he is being born into a world where Jews are being oppressed, enslaved, 
the Roman Empire. They're being oppressed and they're longing for a new kind of exodus. But here's the trick. When you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and you understand why they're being oppressed, it's a whole different scenario from the book of Exodus. They're being oppressed because of their sins. All of the prophets make this really clear. And if you put the whole Old Testament story together, you realize that they need the forgiveness of sins because the forgiveness of sins will release them from their slavery and the tyranny of the Roman Empire. That's the longing of every Jewish boy and girl, mom and dad, and anyone who had any understanding of the Old Testament. This is not just about, I have sinned, and I have offended a holy God, and I need to be made right with him. That is true, but that's an incomplete story to what Jesus is referring to here. He's talking about the kingdom of God being established and a new covenant being made and the new covenant promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel being fulfilled through his body and his blood. The blood of the covenant, the thing that happened in Exodus 24, that's going to happen now through my blood. And now there's going to be a nation and a people on the earth, that through them all of the earth can receive the salvation of God through the body and the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and be set free from a deeper, darker kind of slavery, a slavery of not just your individual sinning, but the power of sin. Let me try and put it this way. Jesus is saying to us, by summarizing the entire story, with these symbols, with these very deeply, richly pregnant words of Scripture, I am not just taking away the penalty of sin. I am doing that. And with that simple point, you and I should behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, our individual offenses against God. But what if there was more? What if it was not just that? What if there was a kingdom and a people and a nation? And what if there was a power behind your individual sinning? Well, then you'd have to believe in mystery and symbols. You'd have to enter into an ancient world that believed that the real enemy here is not just your individual choices in sinning, but the Satan himself, the powers of darkness that are leading to the sinning, that there's a whole cosmic scope going on and that there is your individual sinning, but there's a reason why you're sinning. It's because you're surrounded by the darkness of the present age. What if all of that story is being wrapped up in these few little words and these two symbols? And he says, for the forgiveness of sins, my blood is being poured out for many. And all that Isaiah was saying in chapter 53 when Xavier read it for us, and all that was being promised by the new covenant promises in Jeremiah chapter 33 for the forgiveness of sins, I will remember your sins no more. He's not just talking about your individual sins. He's talking about the whole nation's sins that got them into the problem in the first place. And what if his death was doing all of that? Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. The dark forces that lead to the presence of sin. Remember those three things. Jesus' actions and symbols mean that the penalty is paid, the power is being undercut, therefore the presence of sin can truly transform you, me, and our world. And one day, it will. I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. The new kingdom of God, the new covenant being fully established in the presence of my Father's kingdom. This is not about dying so you can go float off into heaven. This is about Jesus establishing heaven here on earth. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus answers that prayer by dealing with the forgiveness of sins by the blood that establishes the new covenant so that you and I, the many, will be made new in the Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I think it's a really good thing for us to observe here that Jesus, in light of the betrayal that we talked about last week, the dark, overpowering shadow that is hanging over his head, a weight that you and I could never bear, is singing. And if we follow the old Passover Jewish tradition, he's singing Psalms 113 to 118. And when we close out our service today, I'm going to read you a portion from Psalm 118. A blessing, a praise. How do you go out of here singing today? How can we leave here with singing praise to God when you see the presence of sin and the power of sin and you feel the guilt of the penalty of sin? It's like Jesus. You behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, Jesus knows, my body, my blood will undercut the presence, the power, and the penalty of sin. Let's behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, not just today as we take the Lord's Supper, daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, for the rest of of the winter and into the spring. May this be a sweet, sobering, fruitful season for our church family as we meditate on the meaning and significance of not just these symbols, but the story and what the scriptures say. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now in the name of your son Jesus and we thank you for the gift of your presence not in the actual bread itself, not in the actual blood of the cup, but we thank you for your presence here in our midst as we gather, as we experience your presence and your truth and your word. We thank you that Jesus Christ is alive and risen, ascended, ruling and reigning and calling us to believe and behold that sins have been dealt with. Lord, I want to pray for our church family. I want to pray for those who are struggling with their sin, the guilt and the penalty of it, the power and the presence of it. I pray that as we take the bread and the cup now, it would be a transforming symbol to make us new people. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 
would your Holy Spirit so transform our hearts and our very soul that as we behold the glory of the risen Christ, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Not just modest boys and girls, but transformed image bearers of God who are used by you through your spirit for the purposes that you originally gave us from the first page of scripture. Do this every day as we behold. Do this now as we participate and partake of the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.